I want to say I needed that, but really what I need, I need you. And you're so willing to give yourself to us. Even when we've wandered so far away from you, when we've rested in our own thoughts, our own ambitions, our own plans. Help us to trust you. Help us to seek you, to honor you. Help us to be a fragrant offering to your throne. Let that incense arise all day and all night. You are worthy of it all, all of it, all of us. May we pour ourselves out to you, Lord, and tonight, Father, through the word, let your word speak through that you may get every bit of the glory you deserve and that we may be changed, putting off the old and putting on the new, becoming more and more like our dear, beloved Savior who is worthy of it all. And as we're like you, we can praise you. And the more we're like you, the more we get to praise you. The more we know you, the more we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's nice to see the guys from Pure Life here. We've missed seeing some of them, so it's great that you're here. Um, we're in a study in First Thessalonians. And I'm going to go back. Last week we did chapter 2, but I'm going to read verses 17 and 18 as a segue to what we're going to be sharing about tonight. But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short while, in person, not in spirit, were all the more eager with great desire to see your face. For we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, more than once, and yet Satan hindered us. Everything that Paul's been talking about, we talked, he's a heart and a passion for these Thessalonians. And it shows you that those who have the heart and passion for ministry. And I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, we're going to, I'm going to read through the entire chapter 3 all at once in the voice translation. Um, because it really gives you a good sense of what the force is like. There are different translations out there. This is designed for oral reading. And I want you to kind of get a sense of it. And then we'll go through verse by verse. But after all our attempts to come to you were frustrated, we decided it was best for Sylvanus and me to stay behind in Athens by ourselves and send Timothy, our dear brother and servant of God, our partner in the good news of the Anointed One, to strengthen, comfort, and encourage you in your faith so that you won't be shaken by the sufferings and wither under this stress that we know lies ahead. Certainly, you remember that when we were with you, we warned you of the suffering we would have to endure. Now, as you well know, it has happened. This is why I couldn't stand it anymore and sent Timothy to report on the state of your faith. Because I was worried the tempter had tested you, and if so, all of our hard work would have come to nothing. You can imagine my relief and joy when Timothy returned to us with such good news about you, about your faith and love for us, about how you, have it, how you have such good memories of us and long to see us as much as we long to see you. 
Hearing this about your faith, brothers and sisters, brought comfort to us in our stress-filled days of trouble and suffering. For if you are set firmly in the Lord, then we can truly live. What thanks would ever be enough to offer God about you for all the jubilant celebration we'll feel before our God because of you? We remain vigilant in our prayers night and day, praying to once again see your faces and to help complete whatever may be lacking of your faith. May God himself, our Father, along with the Lord Jesus, the Anointed One, navigate our way to you. May the Lord flood you with an unending, undying love for one another and for all humanity like our love for you, so that your hearts will be reinforced with his strength, held blameless and holy before God our Father, and when our Lord Jesus, the Anointed, the Liberating King, appears along with all his holy ones. So this was read to you to give you kind of a, a bird's eye view of the whole chapter. And I'm just going to preface something about when we look at different scripture translations. This is, it is a, a translation, but it's almost like a paraphrase. Okay, so it's not designed for in-depth study. And that's why you need something else. But if you want to get a sense of the gist of the heart of what Paul's going through, I thought it was very useful. So let's move on to the actual, into the trees of the forest, and look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and send Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one would be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. Paul was only, as I shared before, three weeks with the Thessalonian church. He's now in Corinth, or had been down in Athens, which is not far from Corinth, and he's sending them a letter, letting them know what's going on and encouraging them. He wants to see them. He'd been prevented before for doing it, and he still wants to encourage them to, to let them know that I only have three weeks with you. I really want to be there to help you along with your faith. Sometimes we only have a short time. When those who've gone on the mission field, and I've heard, uh, those of you know of David Platt, when he was in Southeast Asia, um, he only had a short time there to share, and people, ministers would come around and so he would just pour himself out. And if somebody, I was involved in something called, um, it's called Secret Church, and it would go from like seven at night to like one or two in the morning, like twice a year, April and November, and they would just like, download information. And I'm sure that's what Paul did when he was there. He just downloaded information to let them know about what Jesus was. Going through, what did they have? They didn't have the New Testament. They went through the Old Testament he was basically were writing the New Testament and he's talking about to encourage them in their faith, giving them the basic principles from the Old Testament but also from the New about what he wanted to do to make sure their faith was strong. And when he couldn't make it, he does the next best thing he could, which he sends his right-hand man, and that's Timothy, to encourage them, to let them know, to check on them, to make sure they're doing okay, to see what he could pray about. 
And when they say, when Timothy there is to minister, it's a different word than what we think. Hebert says, minister is not an official title. It doesn't connote an ordained minister in the modern sense of the term. The word rather designates one who renders of service of some kind to another. It speaks of the servant in his relationship to his work, stressing his activity of serving. To minister to somebody is not a title, it's not a status. It's serving. It's serving, which is what we're all called to do. Morris says, originally the world donated the service of a table waiter. So when you go out to dinner and somebody serves you, that's the kind of thing, waiting on hand and foot, whatever you need. You know, the, you're there and kind of look up and the service was good servable, come to your table. Yes, sir, what can I do? How can I help? That's the heart of service. What can I do? So what does it mean to be say yes? It's often used by the early Christians to give expression to the service that they habitually were to render to both God and to man. Which were a word like slave, which is often used of Christians, puts the emphasis on the personal relation. So we're slave to Christ, refers to who we are. This word talks about what we do, the service we render. So you have to realize that Timothy is ministering. What does it mean? And that's what we're called to. And so when they talk about the trials, they talk about persecution. There's two kinds of persecution in the Greek they had. The kind of persecution that we talk about now in terms of, you know, we're under oppression, we don't have freedoms, um, they're preventing us from... Um, doing certain things, but the word here really talks to a physical form of suffering. It's called thelipsis, and it means basically being pressed and squeezed, okay? And so the other word that we talked about, um, yeah, is pasco, but Morgan says, surveying the whole Christian movement, he saw suffering, that's Paul, everywhere, as the result of loyalty to the faith. And he did not conceive of it merely as something to be endured. He saw God ruling over all and knew that this pathway of pain was, divinely, was a divinely arranged one. Our society in the West looks at suffering as something for us to escape and avoid. We have all done that. We've all done that. I don't want to suffer. I want to run from it. I want to medicate it. I want to go after undesirable things to avoid dealing with it. Anything to escape pain. It's a natural animal response. You know, you touch something hot, you, you know, we have instinctual responses. We want to avoid pain. But that is not the walk of a believer. That's not the walk of a true Christian. Okay, it will be a kind of embrace. Tozer says, before God can use a person greatly, he must allow that person to be hurt deeply. Deeply. Richardson says, God ordains us to affliction. When people become Christians, they perceive a new kind of trouble. Affliction is God's appointment for us. God places affliction strategically in our lives 
for our personal growth. This is God's destiny for us that comes by His divine design. Affliction is God's appointment for us. Trial is no accident. Let me say that again. Trial is no accident. God is not a God of chance. We can clearly see the folly of trying to evade persecutions. Can we? Can we really see the folly? This was the appointed path of the Thessalonians. The word appointed here does not refer to past eternity, but to present time. The Christian life being what it is, and the godless world being what it is, makes afflictions and persecution certain. God says, I have an appointment for you with affliction. We make appointments regularly. But this, this is an appointment I would rather not keep. But affliction is the plan and will of God for the believer. You know, he says, some, some of us might say, what did I ever do to deserve this pain in my life? What did I do wrong? It may be that you didn't do anything wrong. This is just one of the byproducts of being the child of the king. You say, I don't like these side effects of Christianity. But a disciple is someone under discipline. God appoints trial into our lives so we will become more disciplined in the things of God. So Paul spends three weeks with them. As I've shared before, he has to basically run away. They pulled Jason out of the house and they beat him. They screwed him out of there and they're in this trial where the Jews and the Gentiles are against them. So they're under persecution. They're under trial. They're being pressed from every side, squeezed. And so he's justifiably concerned. Are you guys standing strong in the midst of the trial? Are you going to persevere? Because we're going to need to persevere. Guess what, guys? We need to persevere. We're not here just to go la-di-da, la-di-da, la-di-da. Everything's hunky-dory. We're in the Lord's army in the sense. I mean, God can do it all, but he chooses to work through us cracked earthen vessels for a purpose, for the glory of God. Otherwise, die and go to heaven. We're here for the glory of God, but we're here to serve others, to show God's love to others, to minister, to be a servant, to help the needs of others. That is the heart of Paul. That's what the Thessalonians were doing. That's what Jesus is asking of us. So let's go further with Paul in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 4 and 5. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened, and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. Lest by some means the tempter has tempted you and our labor might be in vain. I want you to get a sense of what it means to be a minister like Paul. 
I want you to get a sense of what it means to take the burden of ministry. Some of you may have done that. It's both a tough and light burden. Tough because ministering to people like ourselves who experience the effects of the fall is hard work. Light because Christ carries our burden. He carries our burden, but He doesn't remove the weight or heaviness of them. The weight is part of the sanctification. The African proverb is not that they avoided, I had that, it's not that we avoid trial, but they prayed that their backs would be stronger. Jesus is there to help strengthen our backs to bear through the trials we have. We cast on Him, trusting that He will give us what we need. In the midst of our trials, we can try to hunker down and do it on our own, in our own strength, grit our teeth, bear it up, and invariably break down. Or we can say, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this without you. I can't do this without you. Help me to trust you and to rely upon you. Paul recognized that. But Paul also had a burden. You know, and um, I read this from Sean Nemechek. He's a pastor, and he talked about the heaviness of leadership. And this is the last, you know, week of Pastor Appreciation Month. And we've appreciated our pastor, and we do appreciate our pastor. I don't think we understand all the heaviness of the role of responsibility of having that burden on. I was an, a director, not, I'm not saying a pastor, but just releasing that responsibility of being a director, of handling things, I've realized how free it's become. I don't have to worry about that. But the pastor here, when you take things on, you're always carrying the weight of the church. So the point he says is the weight of responsibility. So every pastor is aware that he will be held accountable for his teaching and his leadership. It's not the accountability to the church that matters. Pastors know that they are accountable to Almighty God to how they teach and lead the church. They'll have to give an account. Everybody, I'll have to give an account from what I'm sharing with you. So those of you who've gone through pure life, remember one of those verses. I think it's the, one of the first verses we had to memorize. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So one of the things we can honor the pastor is... Submitting and trusting. Trusting imperfectly, they are imperfect as we are, that God will work through it. He's an almighty God. He could do it. He doesn't need humans to do what he needs to do, what he wants to get done. But he gets more glory working through fragile, corrupt vessels that he redeems, that he conforms to do what he wants to get done. That's the kind of amazing God we have. He's not giving up on us. We may give up on ourselves. He's not going to do that. He wants us to partner with Him. He wants us to be wholehearted, just as we worship, to trust in Him.
So the other thing that pastors have is the weight of holy desire. I know that with our pastor, desire to see the church grow in maturity in size. Not because we care about numbers, but that we want more people to fall deeply in love with Jesus. We want more people to be completely sold out to Jesus Christ. That's what that desire is about. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. Beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Pastors also bear the weight of criticism. We've talked about over and over how criticized Paul was. Here, even in Thessalonians, justify himself. We went through First and Second Corinthians, and Paul's basically after saying, "Look, I'm not like what they said I was. I may not look great, I may not speak as eloquently, but I love Jesus, and I'm sold out to Him, and will do anything God wants me to do to bring Him glory." Criticism is the cost of leadership. Leaders cause change, and change makes people uncomfortable and fearful. When people feel uncomfortable or fearful, they criticize the people who cause the change. Even when people can see that the change is good, they will criticize the motives, pace, or method of change. It's going too fast. Not the right way. I would have done it this way. The more criticism, the harder leadership becomes and the heavier the pastor's burden. So the question is, are we making those in our leadership, you know, those who went through pure life, I remember that. We all criticized. We all had that critical spirit. Ah, if I was head of this program, I would do it this way. I would do, wouldn't do it that way. Come on. Who hasn't had that? We all thought that. Every one of us. That's the wickedness of the human heart, the critical spirit. Judging, murmuring, grumbling, just like the Israelites did in the desert. Do we trust God that he can work? Ultimately, that's what it comes to. Do we trust God? The weight of spiritual attack. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Wow. So there are many times spiritual attack is more than others, but guaranteed, those in leadership and authority are going to be attacked more. It always happens. That's why you pray for the staff at Pure Life when you're there. That's why you pray for your, your pastor that. Not because he's special, because he's needy. He's needy. We're needy. We're all needy. We need Jesus. We need more. We can't do it in our own strength. Us against the devil, we don't stand a chance. But Jesus is greater. The Holy Spirit's greater. Galatians 6, 9 let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Part of that challenge of that tack can cause depression. There are, Spurgeon had that. Um, another one we quoted, and I'm going blank on his name, um, was profoundly depressed. Many, many, many pastors, many of those in leisure, Brainerd, were, struggled with depression, struggled with their emotions. They're under attack people are under attack and you may not see them at the best when they're because of that you have to pray trust that that god can work through them in the midst of that but help them by your prayer by being men who will stand up as armor bearers 
Pastors also struggle or deal with the weight of glory. So Nemechek says, as a pastor, I want my work to bring glory to God. I want God to be great. But however, there's a very real sense that my church wants me to be greater than I am. People put their pastor on a pedestal. They have high expectations, in many cases, impossible expectations. This means the pastor is continually facing the disappointment of someone. Sometimes these people leave the church. It's hard for the pastor not to take it personally. Every single person who's left here, I know Pastor Jeff, always takes it personally. Second guess himself, would it, could have, should have. We're saying, no, nah, it's not your fault. But he can't, he feels for that. That's the burden of what you have there. Some of you know, I was, I'm, I'm a physician. My wife is a physician, was a physician's wife. She passed 15 years ago. Um, and I was struggling through that. Why did this happen in trial? But God knew what I needed. But the reason I bring that up is she was often friends with a pastor's wife because they could be real with each other and being honest. People had an idea of what their husbands were like and had expectations, okay? And a pastor had an expectation of what a pastor's like. They have an expectation of what a physician's like. And they don't see the real person behind that. And so they could empathize with each other. And she, you know, I still worked well, and she's a nurse, and um, he was my former pastor at the church he used to go to before I'm here. And, you know, her, my wife was her best friend, and she misses her because the only person she could really be real, be honest, be transparent, be authentic because everybody has expectations of that role. Oh, you can't be doubting. You can't be struggling. You can't be worrying. You're supposed to be more spiritual. They're human beings. What I love about our pastor is he's very real about his struggles. He doesn't put any pretenses. He's honest. We're called to do the same, but also to be compassionate. The other thing that stress, they, they, they're burdened by is the weight of sin. The hardest thing a pastor faces is the weight of sin. Puritan pastor John Flavel said, sin and Satan unravel almost all we do. The impressions we make on our people's souls in one sermon vanish before the next. Brother Glenn can tell you he's an evangelist. You know, he'll share messages and we'll share messages. And I've heard some phenomenal messages. Last Sunday was an excellent message. But honestly, if you ask me what happened a month ago, I can't remember exactly what the message was. I know I was affected by his messages back in June of 2016 when I came forward and I was in the program. But I can I remember all the details of that? The answer is no. We know that the devil is trying to snatch away that seed, and our own sin prevents that. Sometimes, sometimes we'll fall asleep in the middle of a message. Who's fallen asleep in the middle of a message? Yeah, we all have. We all have. Okay, that's the enemy trying to discourage us. We have to be active listeners. We have to realize our own sin condition prevents us from hearing the word of God. And they're burdened by that. It can be discouraging to see that spiritual progress is almost always followed by some regression. Sometimes progress feels impossible. Just as true of the pastor's own soul as it is his congregation. The constant fight against sin can be wearisome. When you're struggling in your fight against sin, your pastor is there to encourage you in Christ. So the question is, who encourages him? Well, we do. That's why we have others who do. But we all need to encourage one another. We all need to, to be honest and real. First Thessalonians, so those are the, um, I'm going to move forward because we don't have much time. First Thessalonians 
3, verses 6 to 8. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you, therefore, brethren, in all our affliction and distress, we were comforted concerning you by your faith. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. For now we live if you stand fast in the Lord. So in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness, in fear, in much trembling. So he was in Corinth at the time, struggling with where things are with the Corinthian church as you're writing this. I want you to get a sense, and through this whole thing of Thessalonians and Corinthians, we can sometimes look selfishly from our perspective of what we get out of it. But I want you to get a sense of Paul. This is a man, and when you're in ministry, and when you're... When you're serving the Lord, you have personal burdens. It's a fight. You're praying on your knees. You're praying for people. You're seeking the Lord, seeking wisdom, asking God over and over to help. We're all called to comfort those who are need comforting, and that includes those in those leadership. You know, we can be envious and we can see if somebody does well, you know, materially. We can look and go, oh yeah, they got that new car, or they got that new job, or they got that new house, or they went on that nice vacation. But that's not Paul's heart. What did he rejoice in? How well they did spiritually. That's the metric we have to go by. We have to change our focus from thinking of things from the worldly perspective, but from godly perspective. How are they walking with the Lord? How are they walking? How are they surrendering their lives to Jesus Christ? How big of a church they have, how nice of a sanctuary, how nice of a house, how nice we have all those things, the material things, they're all going to burn up. What's going to last? So then Paul thanks them. So in verses 9 and 10, for what thanks we can we render to God for you, for all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God. Night and day, praying exceedingly, praying exceedingly that you may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. So, John sixteen twenty to twenty two. Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and in your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. So what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice. For your sake, for our God. At all times, his focus was on the eternal. At all times, his focus was on the eternal. He had a sight of heaven, just like we worshipped. Do we realize that we'll be rejoicing and praising our God 
over and over, thanking him for all that he's done. Not even just then. You know, we see dimly now. We'll see clearly how much grace he extended towards us. How much he blessed us. How much he loved us. How much he desired to pour out blessing. And the greatest blessing is a relationship with Jesus intimately and each moment. That is what Christ wants with us now. That is what Paul's praising God for what's happening in the Thessalonians. How close of a relationship they had with Jesus. How much they trusted and relied upon Christ. That was part of the joy. And he realized that even though they go through trial, even though it's pain, even though the world says it looks bad from the outside, deep inside in their hearts, they were being transformed to Christ and giving glory to God. So when you look at the world, honestly, the American church is not the one to be praised. The churches to be praised are those in China who are suffering persecution. Those in the Arab world, Muslim world, who have to meet secretly. Those who are being persecuted. Those in India, and I'm going to go to Pakistan at the end of the week. We'll see how that's going to be. Those in Pakistan. Around the world, those who are suffering for the name, they're the ones who are trusting in Christ when the world tells them, we're going to kill you. We're going to beat you. For a Muslim to convert to Jesus, to Christ, is punishable by death. That's the kind of pressure people are going through. We have no sense of that here in the American church. But Paul does. He sees that. They had that then. And we've glossed over the words. We've glossed over the message of the words because we wanted a comfortable Christianity. We wanted a Christianity where we can go to church, get things of the world, and go home and think that that's okay. Not willing to lay down our lives when the need is great. Not willing to lay down our resources. Buying the things we want. I've been guilty. Going to the entertainment, getting the stuff we want, material things, instead of saying, okay, am I really investing in the kingdom? Do I really believe? Do I really believe? Do I really trust that God's good? Why am I here? In the Old Testament, it talks about a tithe giving a tenth, and then they had offerings and then special offerings. But in the New Testament, there's no specific requirement, though Jesus certainly inferred that it's to give at least a tenth. He said, when you give your tithes and offerings. But he really concerned about the heart. Are we a cheerful giver? And the philosophy in the New Testament is really all of it belongs to God. Every bit of it. Every bit of our resources, every bit of our time, every bit of ourselves, our hopes, our plans, our ambitions, our aspirations, every bit of it belongs to God. That which we withhold from God is selfish, is sin, is death. Only by surrendering God. Now, that doesn't mean I'm asking you tomorrow to just abandon everything and go overseas, though I am asking you to be willing. It's a hard issue. We are not willing because we don't trust that God's that good. We're afraid He's going to punish us by sending us places we don't want to go and do things we don't like. 
That is not the God that we have. That's not the God. He is a loving, tender God. He nurtures and cares. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to let you trial. We just talked about that. There will be trial because he's like a God who wants to push you further, who wants you to be better. It's like my fifth grade math teacher, Mrs. McLean. I still remember her name. She was tough on me, and I was doing well. She was hard on me. I thought she was mean. And then I remember later when I was you know, in grade eight, walked her on the street. She gave me a big smile. I, I never saw her smile. Give me a big smile. How are you doing where things were? I said, Miss McLean, I thought you were mean. I wasn't mean. You were tough on me. You were, yeah, I was tough on you. Because I want you to do better. God wants us to do better. Like a loving father wants us to do the best that he wants for us. And sometimes that's something we're uncomfortable doing. He's definitely not interested in our comfort, except that he's our comfort. So what he wants is a willing heart. The issue over and over again is where is your heart? Where is your heart? So, verses 11 to 13, closing out the chapter. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. With all his saints. John says in 1335, For this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then he says in 1 John 4.20, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? How can you love God who you have not seen? Kelly says this, He prays not that he, they may be established in holiness in order that they may love one another, but they may abound in love in order that they may be established in holiness. Love always precedes holiness. That's the difference between what the Pharisees had. That's the difference between self-righteousness is our love. I know it's with me. With what's been going on in the Middle East, it's really been hard for me to love Hamas. I'll be honest. I want to smack them down. When they want to go after them, I'm thinking that's what they should do. That's my flesh. That's not the heart of God. God's heart is just like this son of one of the Hamas leaders who had a vision of Jesus, that all of them would have a vision of Jesus and they would be surrendered to Jesus. That they would give God the glory that he's due. That's what he wants me to pray for. That's what he wants all of us to love in that way, to love our enemies too. So to love one another, especially in the body, but also to love our enemies. And out of that love, because we know that God's loved us, 
we love God, we'll choose holiness because it is a choice. We'll choose holiness. We'll embrace the trials and difficulties knowing that God's using it to develop perseverance, character, and hope. Those are the things God wants of us. Complete abandonment and trust in Him. Do we believe He's good? He is that good. Better than we imagine. If we can take hold of that, if we can just, God is good, we talk about that and we sing it, we have to really get it down because the enemy is basically, what does he say from the Garden of Eden? God's not that good. Number one lie, God's not good. Every day we're confronted with that lie, that he's not good. But he is. He is that good. My friend Chris gave me that as a t-shirt on saying the t-shirt, which I appreciate. He is that good. If we don't get that, if we do things without love, we will be like what? Like the Pharisees. When Jesus told them in Matthew 23, 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but are inside are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanliness. We have to guard ourselves. We have to check our heart every day. Every day, multiple times. Every one of us is prone to become self-righteous. Everyone at any moment to think, I got this. We don't got it. Jesus got this. Jesus, you got this. I need your help. Daddy, I need to go in your arms. I need you to carry me through. I need you to trust in you. You're that good. We're always needy. If we're always needy and humble, we realize and our hearts are tender. We have to guard the hard hardness of our heart. We have to guard that hard hardness, hard hardness. We have to watch for that. That happens every day. Something happens, we interpret it, we get offended, we get hurt and we harden our heart. So we have to remember the blood, that one drop. We have to remember the cross. Paul did. Every day he remembered the cross. Every day when he was praying for others with the burden of the ministry of all the people that he shared, of all the places he went, the burden he had, responsibility to preach to the Gentiles, he would give it to God knowing that he was insufficient in the task. As I said, wasn't that impressive a man? Wasn't that great of a speaker? But everything he did was through the power of God because he lived a surrendered life. But also, he had a sight of heaven. And he trusted that God was good, knowing that he would provide everything he really needed that he poured out his life. Are we willing to do the same? That's what he asks of us. Heavenly Father, just pray for us all that we would pour out our lives as Paul did, that we would trust, Father, that we would grow in faith, 
Father, we would not be shaken. Father Paul sent Timothy so they would get to see that and found out the good report, and he was joyous because he just loved to hear people just praising God and doing well. And he was not even dependent on him. He didn't care about whether he got credit for it. He didn't care whether it happened beside him. He just cared that, God, you got the glory and that people were falling in love with you, trusting you, because we know that all good is sourced in you, comes from you, poured out by you. May we be conduits of that love to our brothers and sisters in Christ and to all people. And let it transform, that love transform our hearts, our minds, our actions, that we may become a holy people, a purified bride. Jesus, you deserve nothing less. In your name, amen.